And let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we are walking through this book, this epistle, um, Ephesians verse by verse, and we have landed in verse 4, which have, um, has been a great, difficult topic for, for many people. Uh, many beloved and dear Christians have split and called each other's names and things like that, and very, been very unchristlike in trying to defend a doctrine like this. And I think we should always be reminded by 1 Corinthians 13, when we ever come to a controversial topic, right, is that even if I have all the knowledge in the whole world, and I understand all mysteries, but I have not, love, you're just making a racket. Okay, Rian paraphrased. Okay? <laughs> and I think with election, it's the same thing. If this doctrine doesn't humble you, if this doctrine doesn't make you more loving, more patient, more kind, more gentle, then you don't understand it right. Then you need, you need it to, to soak a little bit more in your heart. Um, and that's what we're going to look at today. I really want to help you see the glory of it and rub it into your heart. Today we're going to look more at the applications of this. So last week we did more of the mental work of it. And today we're going to just look about how this should change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you live. And I hope that the Lord will have a great impact in your life through His Spirit. Let's read Ephesians 1 from verse 3. You know the words of the living God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray together. Father, even as believers, we need you to understand these truths. We, even as those who have been regenerated, who have been born again, who had their spiritual eyes opened to see the glory of Christ in the gospel, even us, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit even right now not just to hear these words, not just to agree, even agree with these words, but to truly rejoice in these words, to truly bless the blessed God who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So Father, we pray, we ask, we beg you for your Holy Spirit right now to, to blow on us, to fill us, to open us, to help us to understand. Lord, as the Hebrews writer writes, how often we are so dull of hearing, we're so slow to hear, slow to understand. Lord, let it not be true tonight. Let it not be true in this evening, Lord, as we look at this text and the, what, what it says, but also how it applies to us. Please, Lord, I pray that we would humbly rejoice and reach verse 6, that we might say, to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I want to encourage you, if you have missed last week's sermon, last week we did the, the very hard work of tackling into the objections to this verse and, um, or this doctrine of election. And, um, and if, you haven't, if you've missed it, please listen to the last week's sermon. So today I'm assuming that you've already listened to that. And that now I just want to show you why it's a good news, why this is something that Paul could say, bless God. It's not just something that he could, you know, win a debate about, but something that he was in prison and he was deeply comforted by this doctrine. And if you've noticed, we've only looked at half of verse 4, right? We've only looked at 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But we haven't looked at the rest of the verse. And that's really where we are going tonight, this afternoon. We're going to look at the purpose of election. The reason why we need to spend some time as well applying this is, like I've said, it is possible to understand it and to leave exactly the same. Indeed, to leave proud, to leave away more sinful than you came. So, like I said, this doctrine, we need to really watch our hearts and guard our hearts and make sure that we don't just hear these words, but that we humble ourselves under, that we truly adore God for his election and praise him for that and rejoice in it. So that's what I want to do. I want to take these doctrines. I want to rub it into your heart. I want you to see it and feel it. And I want you to reach verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. I want you to share Paul's praise. I want you to be able to, to not just say, okay, I understand it, but to be able to sing about it. That's where we need to be. And tonight we're only going to look at six, six applications, six ways how this doctrine should change us and should uh, affect our thinking. And here's the first one. Doctrine of election. Election is for holiness. It is for holiness. Okay. Um, well, that's just what the verse says, right? That's just what verse 4 says. That's the purpose. Immediately after he, he, he writes about election, he says, it's for what reason, for what purpose, in verse 4, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So that's why God chose us. That's why God chose anyone so that he might have a holy bride for his son. That's not just the, the, the purpose of our election. That's going to be the inevitable result of our election. In other words, all those whom God has chosen to be saved will be holy. And if you are not holy, God's going to make you holy. He's gonna, he has ways to make us holy. Whether through kicking and screaming and you'll praise him at the end or just submitting at the beginning and it will be all good, right? So holiness, remember the word holiness literally means to be set apart, to be other, to be different. God is essentially holy. God is other. God is not like us. God doesn't think like us. God doesn't act like us. God is other. God is transcendent. When it comes to sin and morality, God is other. We don't, what we would say is okay, God says is eternally dam damnable. Think about the very first sin. What was it? Well, eating a fruit. And from that sin came all cancers, all death, all suffering, all eternities in hell forever and ever from eating a fruit. We would have said, Lord, don't be so harsh. You see, because we are not holy. We don't think like God. We are not other like him. But God is holy. God is utterly other. And so we, when God saves us and he's beginning to make us holy, we are becoming different. We're becoming other than the world. We are we're not thinking like the world. We're not talking like the world. We're not doing marriage like the world. We're not doing parenting like the world. We're not doing anything like the world. Not church, not anything. We, because we are becoming a people set apart for God. We are holy. We're other. We're different. Blameless is the other side of the coin of holiness. So not just for holy, but also to be blameless. So blameless refers to kind of human accusation. So if somebody would blame you for something, the accusation is thrown at you and it just slides off your shoulder. It doesn't stick. You can't blame somebody, all right? So it's, it's blameless. And that's what God wants us to be. 
to be holy, set apart, and to be blameless, to be pure, to be holy. And the very essence of being holy and blameless is found at the end of verse 4. It says, holy and blameless before him in love. Now, most of your translation starts a new sentence there. It's like, in love he predestined us. Now, that's because in the Greek, it can either go before or it can go after. It can either modify that we are holy and blameless before him in love or that God in love predestined us for adoption as sons. So the Greek can go either way. So we have to make, kind of make a choice or Paul just wanted us to think of both. Okay? The latter is also a possibility. But I think Paul is, in, Paul is leaning towards that we are holy and blameless before him in love because there's a parallel text we need to look at here. Okay? But, so the question I want to ask is, who is the before him in verse 4? So it says we are holy and blameless before him. Who is that him? Is it God the Father or is it God the Son? And I think Ephesians 5 answers that question for us. Let's just turn quickly to Ephesians 5, verse 25. It's, it's the same language used of marriage, um, of husbands loving their wives. And listen, it's the same, same language here in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be what? Again, same words. Holy and without blemish. So do you see the parallel here? Jesus loves the church and dies for her so that she might be holy and blameless before him as his bride. He's the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. So this holy and blameless is actually marriage language. It's marriage language. To be holy and blameless before him refers to the father choosing a bride for his son before the foundation of the world that she might be holy and blameless before him. So the picture is the church standing before Jesus as a bride in love for him. If I say a young bride stands before her bridegroom, holy and blameless in love, right? We all would immediately understand, right? Dazzling eyes, looking at the bridegroom and vice versa. If you haven't cried, shame on you. No, don't, okay, you don't have to cry. <laughs> but usually it's so beautiful. There are tears, right? It's because there's just love. That's what you feel. That's what... You know, and I'm just such a sucker for marriages because I'm not even the bridegroom or the bride. I just cry all the time. <laughs> like, something's wrong with me. But, but you, you get the picture here, right? This is what this holy and blameless means. It is at a bridegroom. It's at a marriage. A bride's ultimate allegiance is for her husband and she loves him. And so with us, God chose us to be Christ's bride. Remember, marriage is the shadow of our marriage with God. One day in heaven, there won't be marriages because then there will be the real thing. Some of you are like, oh, <laughs> like, isn't that a downgrade? Well, we don't have the capacity now to enjoy the things we're going to enjoy there. So just wait. I promise you in heaven, you're not going to worry about that. I promise you. But that's the idea. God chose a bride for his son that we might be holy and blameless in love before him. It's not just the end destination of us. It is the inevitable result of being in Christ, of being chosen. You will become increasingly holy and blameless now in this life as you walk with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is essential, a test to know if you are elect. Do you want to know if you are elect, if you are chosen? Are you holy? 
Are you set apart? Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in love for Christ? Love for his word? Is that an ever-increasing, no matter how unsuccessful you might be, is that an ever-increasing reality in your life? You're becoming more and more in love with Christ. Not in the world's sense in love, but loving him. Are you growing in that? That means if you are not holy, if you have no desire to be holy, if you have no desire to be different, to be set apart for God, then you have no reason to believe that you are among the elect. Then you have no reason to believe that you are saved. Because the very first result of being elect is to be holy. And that's why I read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You see, how do you confirm that you are elect? By practicing the qualities that God has called you. By being holy, as God is holy. Jesus said it clearly in the Gospels, Matthew 7, verse 15. Now, this is in context of false teachers, but I believe it applies to all believers and unbelievers. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree, notice this, cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We don't know who the elect are, but Jesus gave us a clue. You will know them by their fruits. That's how you will know. And they will respond to the gospel, right? So we should take this warning to our hearts and we should test ourselves. So there's, there's in, in this text actually a warning and a test. Not... Because there are some people who believe in this doctrine that God has chosen people to be saved and then they live in sin as if it doesn't matter what they do. But it's the very opposite of what election is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to make us holy. That's the evidence that you are saved. But at the same time, it's not just a warning. It's a tremendous encouragement for struggling sheep. For sheep who sin over and over and over again. Because this, if this is true, it means... You will be holy, whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay. God is faithful. He is stronger than you. Your destiny is holiness. Nothing can stop that. If God has chosen you, you will be holy. No dropouts. No one falls away in this sovereignty of God because he loves us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this quote from him, just to give you an idea of how this can apply to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, because we have been chosen to holiness, we must and will be holy. According to Paul, we are not chosen with the possibility of holiness, but to the realization of holiness. Being chosen and being holy are inseparable. God, who has chosen you to holiness, will make you holy. And if the preaching of the gospel does not do so, God has other means and methods. He may strike you with illness. He may ruin your business. God will make you holy because he has chosen you unto holiness. He might make your life very, very difficult, but that might, be, that might be the best thing that can ever happen to you. That you might be holy, you might be weaned off from the world. Or to put it in biblical terms, Hebrews 12, verse 8 to 10 says, If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. If you are not experiencing this discipline of God, you are not a child of God. He says, verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, 
shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. That's why he disciplines us. So for us who are, who are if we look inside of us, we just see more sin and more sin, more reasons to doubt. This is an incredible encouragement. He will ensure our holiness since it is him who chose us before the foundation of the world. We can rely and rest in his sovereignty as well. God is faithful. He is your father. He will keep you. He will ensure. So rest in that. So that's the first blessing, our first way we should praise God for this doctrine as well, which leads us naturally to our second point. Election is for our security in God's love. Security in God's love. This is the ultimate and deepest reason why you can be absolutely sure that God loves you and will never stop loving you. Not because of works you have done or progress in you, but because he loves you, because he chose you. Before the foundation of the world, you weren't even born. When my sin feels too many, when I doubt if I could ever be saved, when I've seen so much of my sin in myself, is this, it is this thought that keeps me up. God, Rian, God chose you first. He loved you first. Rest. Beloved, think about it. If this choosing of God of you was not something that was done before the foundation of the world, let's say it was something you did in time or based on some decision you made in time, then you would be constantly worrying, is my faith strong enough? Is my, has, did I do something now to change his mind over me now? Have I changed his mind over me? But because his choice of you was in eternity past with all your sins and your failures in view, there's absolutely nothing that can change his mind to love you. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 gives us the basis of his predestining and his work. Look at it. It says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, that's the basis. It's According, not to our faith, not according to our initiation, not according to our choice, according to the purpose of His will. That is the reason, that is what inclined God to choose. It is His counsel, His wisdom, His sovereignty. And because it's in God, it never changes. It will be stable. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson, another great quote. He says, how wonderful to reflect on the fact that God loved me before I loved him, before I trusted in his son, even before his son came, even before the creation of the world. Can his love for me be that big, that long, that deep? Yes, indeed. And if it is rooted in eternity, it will also last for eternity. God always puts the finishing touches to the work he has begun. Philippians 1 verse 6. I love that. He always puts the finishing touches on the work that he has begun, right? When our children are scared and they cling to our hands they, and they hold on to our hands for protection, right? There's a, there's a grip there. There's a, if you ever felt a toddler, they actually have a lot of strength. Okay. But it is not just them holding on to me, right? I have an unshakable parent grip <laughs> that will never let go. Even if he wants to go, uh-uh, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. And in a similar way, that's how God holds us, right? He draws us, he holds us, he disciplines us, he brings us back, he leaves the 99, he goes and gets the one, and he always succeeds. 
we, he ensures we will reach heaven because he's almighty. He's faithful. He's our shepherd. He's loving. We are in his fatherly hands. John 10 verse 28 says the same thing. It says, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch him out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So unless you're stronger than the son and the father combined, then good luck. You can, you can lose your salvation. But beloved, I want you to feel this. I want you to feel the weight of this. Especially this next sentence. I want you to feel for you personally, if you are a Christian. God chose you. Rest. Rest in Him. He has you. <laughs> He's stronger than you. He will keep you. So that is for our security in His love. It's for holiness, it's for security, but it's also for our stability. Stability in God's promises. I, I believe that you will always struggle to really believe God's promises unless you believe that God is sovereign over all things. Not just in some areas of life, but over all things. And that's what I mean by stability. Um, to be constant, stable, unwavering in your faith in God's promises for us in Christ. Again, if God is the one who chose us before the foundation of the world, then nothing can rob you of the blessing God wants to give you in Christ. Nothing is going to change this desire of God to bless you forever and ever and ever. Now, this is closely connected with this, the, the, the previous point, but here I have a little bit broader application in mind, more of all of his promises. The Christian that sees that God is sovereign in election starts to see and really believe that nothing can frustrate his will. And as his will is to save you, nothing will stop that. Nothing will stop that. Listen to Romans 8.28, right? Probably the most famous promise in all of Scripture it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But you might say, but how can I believe that promise? The very next verse starts with one word, for. Why can you bank your hope on the fact that God will work all things together for your good? Because for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, so God's predestining of you is the basis on which you can believe and trust in the, in the promises of God, Romans 8.28. That's the basis that we can know nothing is going to stop this. The chapter continues with other amazing promises that who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? It is Christ who died. It's God who justifies. No, who can separate us from the love of God? Who can change that from us? No, nothing, not the devil, not angels, nothing in the present, nothing in the future. Nothing will change that. And then Romans 9 essentially answers the question, why can we believe those promises? How can we believe that Romans 8 is not going to fall flat? Listen to Romans 9 verse 6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Remember the context here is Israel National Israel rejecting the Messiah. So it looks like God's promises is not working. Okay, Lord, all these great promises in Romans 8, but how can I be sure that will work for me because not even your own people believes in you? That's the central question of Romans 9, is how can we trust God's word if it looks like the Jews are not believing in the Messiah? It doesn't look like God's word is that powerful. How can God's word be true? And the answer of Romans 9 is, again, election. <laughs> That's the answer. That's, that's the support. 
God's word cannot fail because he has chosen his people to whom the word will always be fulfilled without fail. God has a remnant. God has an Israel within Israel. And that promises of God will always come to, come to pass to, for them. That, that's what the rest of Romans 9 verse 6 says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Who are these Israel within Israel? Well, verses 10 to 12 continues and says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Here we would have expected him to say, not because of works, but because of faith. right? But yet, he doesn't contrast our works with faith. He contrasts our works with election. He goes one step back, not because of works, but because of his election, of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So God's purpose of election of people before the foundation of the world is the rock-solid mountain on which you can stand to believe Romans 8. And all of that glorious, glorious promises. So election is not just for holiness, it's for security, stability, but here it is also, fourthly, for humility. For our humility. Sometimes this doctrine causes the opposite. Sometimes people, instead of becoming humble and low and realizing that they are nothing, think that they are something and something amazing because they understand these things. Like I said, these doctrines are so huge and so deep and so majestic that it has the potential to intoxicate you. But this doesn't mean that this doctrine isn't true because there's people who, who abuse the doctrine. In fact, I believe if we accept this doctrine fully, every last single little bit of boasting you might have been tempted with is gone. It's gone. Nothing. It's all been removed. Listen, and that's the point of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 31. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we have answered the question, why are you saved and others are not? You might, be say, you might say, because I'm in Christ. That's why I'm saved and others are not. But, let, but this verse takes it one step back. Why are you in Christ and others are not in Christ? What caused your faith? What was the final reason that moved you to believe? And verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 actually gives the answer. It says, and because of whom? Because of him you are in him. Okay? It's because of God that you are in Christ. The deepest reason, the last reason, the final reason for why you are saved and others are not, you have to trace it back to the free grace of God. God was completely free. And he chose you. And that's it. It's grace. It's grace. And that humbles you. That brings you low. It was not because you were more perceptive, more wise, more inclined to believe. It was not because we had a better char character traits than others. 
No, we chose Christ because God chose us first, based on nothing good or evil that we would do, but simply because of his kind intentions and his wisdom and his counsels. So this should make believers above everything else to be humble. When we see somebody who's not in Christ, who's not saved, who's walking away from Christ, we, we have no right to think that we are better than them. Because it wasn't us that made the final, the final switch from darkness to light. It wasn't us. We have no reason to, say, to think anything higher than anybody else. Because it was never by our works that we were saved. It's by His choice. So when we look at an unbeliever, we see ourselves. We see, when we see someone that is rejecting Christ and hating God, we see who we are apart from God's grace. And that's how it humbles you. That gives you patience. So this doctrine above all should make you humble. Humble and loving and patient with those who do not know. And hopeful over those who are not saved because it's not by their works that they will be saved. God has the power and authority to save even a soul that's on his, on his way to murder Christians. God can save him. Think of the person you say, that guy's lost. No hope for him. Don't, don't, don't be so quick. Okay? Have you prayed for him? Have you evangelized him? Have you seen what God could do? Because of this doctrine, it gives you hope. And that leads us to the fifth point. Evangelism is for evangelism. Election is for evangelism. So far from being a stumbling block for evangelism, election, oh, election is the fuel which fuels our evangelism. Personally, I just want to share, that's one of the reasons why I decided to come to Clackstorp to be the pastor there. It's because I know God's elect are there. They are there. I just have to preach and God will open their eyes and they will come. That motivates me to go. Many of the famous missionaries that we love believed in this doctrine as a fuel, as an anchor in their souls when it looks like nothing works, when it looks like the gospel is not making sense and everybody rejects it. They keep on going because they believe God's elect are there and they will hear and they will respond. So we should preach it to them. George Whitfield, for example, famous preacher, great evangelist. Charles Simeon was the founding figure of the missionary, missionary society who sent more than 9,000 missionaries. William Carey, known as the father of the modern mission movement, went to India. He believed that God chose people before the foundation to be saved. Paul himself, I believe, believed this, obviously, because I'm preaching it. But listen to how he says it, right? In 2 Timothy 2.10, 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore, I endure everything for whom? For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I endure everything. I will die. I will give my life up so that people might hear and that the elect might be saved. This helps us. And this, you know, we, we often say this, but deep down we don't really believe it. That You know when we say, you can't save anyone? Right? We, we say that, and that, that's a glorious, true thing. But deep down, we're like, Yo, was I persuasive enough? Did I? You know, and you, you wonder, like, could I have done more? Could I have done less? And, but at the end of the day, it is God. God must open eyes. God must raise the dead. God must save people. We must pray, be faithful, and give ourselves away in love for people. You and I cannot save anyone. Our job is simply to be faithful. And here's the last reason. The last reason, last blessing and why this should help us is for praise. 
we end where we began. The ultimate reason why God would choose anyone and save anyone is to give them eternal joy by uniting them to his Son, by the Holy Spirit, that we might just sing about his praises and his grace for all of eternity. 1 verse 6 says, why did God do this? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, this is how this doctrine should make your heart swell, should make your heart adore God and humble you and make you fall down and say, Lord, it is by your grace and your grace alone, not by anything, not even my inclinations that made me believe, but it's you, it's you, it's you. For from him, through him, to him are all things, to him be glory. Forever we will sing of the eternal love for us. Forever we will stand amazed of his amazing grace. Our election is for holiness. It's for our assurance. It's for our humility. It's for stability to believe the promises of God. It is for evangelism that we might share and rest in God's work. And it is for praising the triune God who loved us first. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are humbled by this doctrine. We bow ourselves low before you. Lord, it was nothing, nothing in us that moved your heart to choose us. It was nothing in us. But it's according to the purpose of your will that you predestined us for adoption. That you chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It is because of your eternal love for us. Lord, what can we say but thank you? Lord, thank you. We, we love you for this. We praise you for this. Oh Lord, I pray that this will not um, be twisted in our thinking, but help us, Lord, to think about it biblically, to help us to, to use this as a, as a motivation to share, motivation to be bold, to share the word with people who need it. I pray that this will give us hope to pray even for the, the worst sinner, the, the greatest sinner, Lord, if you have saved the chief of sinners, Paul himself, then you can save anyone. Anyone. For that power belongs to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, I pray that it will cause us to be stable and secure in our own relationship with you, that we will really preach to ourselves that you love us before the foundation of the world, that you have chosen us by nothing we have done. And let that be our security. But let that also lead us, Lord, to holiness. Oh, Lord, please make us a holy bride. Sanctify us more and more, Lord, so that we might be to the praise of your glory. Father, we thank you for this evening and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.